Hello and welcome to the Tower Hill Church Podcast. This is Marisa from the Tower Hill Production Team. Thanks so much for tuning in. Whenever or wherever you are listening from, we hope this podcast helps you grow in your faith. And we hope you share it with others so that they can grow in their faith too. We are, uh, we are in a, new, a sermon series we started last week about following the real Jesus. Because what happens, I think, over time, like barnacles on a boat, we start adding things to Jesus. And we go through our faith and we, it sort of becomes Jesus and. And by the time we're done with that enough, like barnacles on a boat, it's just going to clog everything up. Things are going to stop working. And that can definitely happen to our faith. So we're calling it fixing the code, how misconceptions about Jesus have infected or and always degraded our faith, that we become further and further removed from the real Jesus and we're settling for a, a fake Jesus, an alternate, an alternate version of Jesus that isn't strong enough to bear the weight of our souls, our lives. More on that in a minute. We talked last week about uh, my obsession with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and how that was a movie that made me love movies and how the whole time they're running from the posse, the super posse that's chasing them through rivers and rocks and everything else. They keep asking, who are those guys? It's like they keep coming. They keep showing up. We can't elude them. And I figure for everybody in this room, and I'm sure everybody outside of our walls, they're asking the same question about Jesus. Who is this guy? He keeps showing up in my life. Just when I think I'm done, he shows up again. Or somebody talks about going to church. Somebody talks about faith. I can't shake it. Who is this guy? I need to know once and for all. Maybe some of you, you're here this morning and you're asking yourselves that question. Who is Jesus really? And what does that mean for my life? I had a little fun showing you some computer code. And I know there's at least a couple people in the room who are probably rolling their eyes at me. Because I really don't know anything about computer code. I just know that I tried to do a thing and it didn't work until I fixed the actual code. But I think sort of like as it comes to our faith, you know, this version of Jesus, it's so much easier to spot the errors in our code when we see the source, when we see the original. Because here's what's at stake is that if you build your faith on faulty code, it's not going to work. If you have a version of Jesus that isn't the real version of Jesus, it's not going to be enough. And you're going to wonder why. Or it's going to come out kind of sideways. Like the example I gave last week about, you know, the kid in the youth group, dad came to talk to me, my kid's a little into Jesus, you know. Because God doesn't micromanage our lives. He doesn't care about everything about our lives. And That's faulty code. And no, you can't build your life on that. So if we can get to a clearer picture of the original code, the version his very first followers knew, we can fix the errors. And I want to say this. Obviously, you're free to believe whatever you want to believe. What I'm sharing with you, though, this is what Christians believe. This is what was believed since the beginning. And it helps because... Oftentimes people will come to you, maybe knowing that you go to church and knowing you're a Christian, and they'll have these, these kind of beefs with Christianity, or they'll have some questions about, well, 
didn't you know that Jesus really didn't claim to be God or Jesus, right? And so you want to know, well, how do I answer them? Is that true? Trying to give you a little information here. But I'm going to say what I said last week. This sermon series is not so you can use it as a blunt weapon against somebody. Go listen to what the pastor said. He, right? Don't do that. Don't do that. It's in the spirit of that song, Jesus, Friend of Sinners, that I deliver this message today. In fact, I think Jesus, Friend of Sinners is the perfect Christian song. I think that's a song you can listen to every day, and it will help you walk in the light of Jesus Christ. All right. So last week we talked about a couple faulty codes that needed fixing. One was that there is no evidence outside the New Testament for Jesus Christ. There are people who say that. Well, it's all in the New Testament. There's no evidence that Jesus even lived, that he was even real. And then the other code in similar, hand and glove, is that Jesus' divinity wasn't decided until the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, some 300 years after the crucifixion. And so if, if you're interested in those two faults, go back, listen to last week. But we just very quickly fixed those codes. There is evidence outside the New Testament. It is everywhere. And Jesus' divinity was established in the beginning by his followers. That doesn't prove he was divine, but it proves that he was believed to be by the very first people who put their faith in him. I don't know if you're into NFL playoffs or anything, so if you're sick of it, just like, you know, you could tune out for a second. Sorry, I'll give you permission. But last week... A little bit of spiritual controversy happened when C.J. Stroud was interviewed after the game. C.J. Stroud, a young rookie quarterback for the Houston Texans, lost yesterday, but last week had the, the game of his life. And he was about to be interviewed, and he said, he said in the interview, he said the following, he said, I just want, going to the next slide, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he went on with it. Some of you, some of you know what I'm talking about. He gives uh, praise to Jesus. He's a really strong uh, Christian kid. And apparently on replay, it seems the network edited this out. They edited his statement. Now, they are appropriately getting a lot of pushback for this. But I'm curious. I find it really fascinating. So I'm going to ask the question, well, why? Why? What's at stake? Why does it matter what this kid says about his faith when you're interviewing him after the game? Why did you feel you had to edit that out? What was so offensive about it? Well, you think about in our culture, our culture's built on not having any truth claim because we all have our own truth. We're all taught that, no, it's whatever's your truth is your truth, and that's good. We're not saying there is an objective truth because that means I'm telling you that you have to believe in something. Think about it this way. Our culture is built around buffet line spirituality. Right? I'm going to take a little of this. Ooh. Take a little of this. Right? And you build your own religion based on the things that you like. Well, I like this about Jesus, and I like this about Buddha, and I like this about... Right? And I'm just sort of buffet line it to create a, what's essentially my own religion. Which always blows my mind when people are like, how can Christians be so arrogant to say that you know the truth about God? And then I'm like, so building your own religion and calling that true, that's not arrogant? 
At least I'm going with 2,000 years of a faith system. But be that as it may, in our culture today, it's, all, it's sort of like everything's equally true. So that's why it's so offensive, is the only way this works is to avoid any exclusive claim about God. Jesus can be seen as a teacher, a friend, a guru, a holy man, whatever, but he can't be referred to as God. And this was what was so offensive in that interview. But I think a more important question, because this comes up too, is, well, what did Jesus say about himself? There are folks out there who will say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God himself. That came later. Jesus said some things, and maybe people got carried away, but this is the faulty code number three we're looking at, that Jesus never claimed to be God. And they'll even say, they're like, well, you know, maybe he implied some things that just simply got exaggerated by his followers. Okay. Or he was just misinterpreted. You thought you heard him saying it, but he didn't really say it. All right. Let's take a look at this. Did Jesus really claim to be God? I mean, really. Or did we sort of impose that on the words of Jesus? Let's jump to the Gospel of John, chapter 10, and catch this episode here, starting in verse 24. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Okay, now, nobody says this unless you're claiming to be God. In ancient Jewish culture, nobody says this. He actually says it more clearly in a minute. But nobody claims to give eternal life unless you're saying that you're God. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. Why? Because it was the capital punishment to claim that you are God. Blasphemy is a capital punishment. Which incidentally is what he was charged for when he was crucified. Blasphemy. Otherwise he wouldn't have been crucified. That was why. They didn't just not like Jesus or were threatened by Jesus. It's probably both of those, of course, but they got him on charges of blasphemy because he was claiming to be God. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy because you, a mere man, claim to be God. That seems about as cut and dry as you can get. However, there are some who say, and I remember last week you looked at the timeline, some who say, well, if the crucifixion happened around 33, and last week's, uh, this is Philippians chapter 2 in the, in the Greek text, we get that Christ hymn afterwards, and Philippians in 50 AD, the Gospel of John was the fourth gospel written, and that wasn't written until the year 95 AD. So what people will say is, there's a lot of time between 33, nope, back 
33 and 95. Fair enough. I will point out that nobody seems to argue that D. Harlan Wilson's biography of Hitler to be the best one. It was written in 2014. Hitler died in 1945, so that's 69 years after, but apparently that one's good. But let's, let's cut to the chase and cut that number in half. Instead of the year 95, let's go to Mark's gospel, which is the earliest of the four gospels at 63. Now, why is that important? Because 30 years is within a lifetime. Again, like I was saying last week, you remember, well, unless you're 20 or 30 years old, you don't remember, but all of us aged ones remember like 20 years ago, even 30 years ago. Some of you remember 50 years ago. With vivid detail, you remember where you were when the, you know, the, the moon landing. You remember where you were when JFK was shot. I remember where I was on 9-11. You remember these things so that if somebody were to come to you and be like, oh yeah, do you remember 9-11? Yeah, it didn't really happen, did it? Uh, no, it happened. I, I've got proof. Yeah, but there weren't really airplanes that flew into the... Yes, there were. We saw... Like, if you were to come around and say these things about Jesus in Mark's gospel, and they were just complete lies, like a fabrication, a made-up story, Christianity never would have gone anywhere. Because people were like, that didn't happen. I was there in Jerusalem. I was there under Pontius Pilate. They never crucified some Jesus guy. Right? So this is all within a lifetime. And here's what happens in Mark's gospel. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Interestingly, so he would say, like, Blessed One, because they were so allergic to saying the Lord's name. And then Jesus answers with this, I am. We know I am isn't just a response. He's saying he's intentionally reminding them of Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush where God introduces himself as I am who I am. This is Jesus saying I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. What's that about? Well, that's actually from a vision from Daniel. Daniel had this vision, and this is how it goes. This is Daniel chapter 7. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, because they wouldn't say Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Back to Mark. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. Clearly, Jesus was claiming to be God. So who is this guy? Well, according to Jesus' own words, he is the I am. He is God incarnate. He is the prophesied one who is to come on the clouds of heaven, son of man. And in fact, interestingly, son of man was his favorite title for himself. So he had the reference to Exodus 3, and then son of man I think it was something like 80 times is mentioned in the New Testament uh, in Jesus referring to himself as well. 
That was a favorite title of his. Now, what this does is it fixes the code. Jesus did claim to be God, and that's why he was crucified. Now, that doesn't prove he was God, just that he claimed to be God. That seems to be an important detail. So who is this guy? Is he really God or not? Or is he just kind of one in the buffet line? I think it's an important question to ask. Let me tell you why I'm a Christian. I'm not, well, maybe I'll start by saying why I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Christian because of Jesus' teaching. I'm not a Christian because of the church and other Christians. That's not why. I'm a Christian because of the resurrection. And I listen to the teachings, and I am part of a church because of the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't happen, we're all wasting our time. Then he's not God. Then what the heck are we doing? Let's go get breakfast. I build my faith in sort of concentric circles. And it starts with the resurrection event. Here's why. I know people say, well, you can't prove it. I think there's more proof that the resurrection happened than didn't. So, well, you can't prove it scientifically. Just like I can't prove that you brushed your teeth four months ago, scientifically. It happened, I hope. Because it's not that kind of thing that you measure in a lab. But you can build a case for it like you would in a court of law. There are eyewitnesses. There are facts. There are things that you can verify. And here's this. If the resurrection didn't happen, how do you explain that his body is gone? Because the Romans, I promise you, would have loved to parade his body around to say, nope, didn't rise from the dead right here. They didn't want anybody believing that he, was, that he rose from the dead. Are you kidding? They, they want to just keep the peace and keep everybody under their foot. Well, maybe the disciples hid the body. Okay, then why did those disciples become martyrs believing that he rose from the dead? Again, like I said last week, at some point someone's going to fess up. Okay, okay, just kidding. Oh, you're going to kill me? Okay, yeah, yeah, I didn't mean it. It's Peter's idea. Or maybe explain to me how his own brother believed he was the Messiah. What would it take for your brother to believe that you're the Messiah? Maybe that's enough proof. Maybe that's all the proof that we need. I don't know. But you also can't explain how Jesus transformed my own heart. Without a resurrection, it doesn't make any sense. I was lost and I was found and I felt something inside of me that changed me that was not from me. It has no explanation. That's the crazier part in my mind. But it's because the resurrection happened that I believe everything else. You see what I mean? So some people get hung up on like Old Testament stories. Well, did Jonah really, did what, or whatever it is, whatever your thing is. 
or the flood or Adam and Eve or whatever that is. Maybe this will help you. My theology is built around the resurrection. So I believe the New Testament accounts of the resurrection. And I look at the Old Testament, why? Because Jesus taught it. Jesus was a rabbi. He taught the Old Testament. So I guess the Old Testament is something I need in order to understand Jesus. So whether I have to get into it and believe scientifically that, or whatever, that seems a little bit like a red herring, like an adventure and missing the point. What I need to know is why is the Old Testament important for me to understand Jesus? It helps me understand sacrifice, the problem of sin, how God tried to solve that problem, tried to make us know. He gave us the law so that we would figure how do we live in the way that God wants us to live, all of these things. That's why I believe in all of that. Because of the resurrection. Because there's evidence. There's testimonials. Jesus said it and he did it. Anyone could just say it. Anybody who predicts his own death and resurrection and pulls it off, I'm going to listen. It's kind of like um, if I came to you up here and I'm like, hey, look, anybody, I, I, hope, I hope you're not, but if you were suffering and you needed brain surgery, guess what? I am now a brain surgeon. Good news. So uh, you, can, you can cut the lines. I take all insurance. And uh, I could do your brain surgery. Clearly, you would not trust me to do that brain surgery. I mean, you would at least need a few things. First, I need some evidence that you actually now are a brain surgeon. Like, show me. Help me understand how you went from pastor to brain surgeon. And I want to see your credentials. Was this an online class? (laughs) Did you go to med school? Like, I want to see some credentials. And I need to talk to the people that lived. I need some testimonials who actually survived. And then, and probably not, but that's, I would even just dream of starting to consider for you to actually operate on me. Now, what's the spiritual version of this? The spiritual version of this is I have, I have a sin disease that needs healing. And I've tried to operate on myself. It didn't go really well. It never seems to work out. Or I try the buffet line of a lot of religious and spiritual ideas that never seem to get me anywhere. Do you have enough for the Lord to operate on you? Is there enough evidence? Do you trust his credentials? Do you believe the testimonials? If not, keep working on the code. Keep examining the real Jesus. Because once you find him, you find the Jesus your soul's been longing for. That version of Jesus that will take it all upon himself. He will bear your burdens. He will forgive your sins. He will propel you into your life's destiny. 